Welcome, Peter King Podcast, post-draft edition of the Peter King Podcast. Man, what a weekend it was. Um, and we're going to get into everything here on the podcast with my friend Paul Burmeister from NBC Sports. You'll also hear an interview I did in Jacksonville uh, on Friday with the number one pick in the draft, Trevor Lawrence. And I'm also going to bring you a couple of revealing snippets from a conversation I had on Saturday with San Francisco coach Kyle Shanahan, who uh, I thought was very revealing on why he picked Trey Lance over Mac Jones. So we'll get to all that. But Paul, first, there is so much to talk about in the wake of a really, really interesting draft. And I think it would be good for us to sort of start with where exactly the Aaron Rodgers thing stands right now. And I think I would I would just say that I, I think we are in for a long stalemate. I don't think this is going to be over soon. I think that Rodgers is going to stick to his guns that he wants out. And I think the Packers are basically going to say, look, you signed a contract. You've got time left on your contract. You need to live up to that contract. Now, you and I both know uh, that Rodgers, on one end of the spectrum, you'd call him principled. On the other end of the spectrum, some people might call him stubborn. But I don't think he's going to relent. How do you see it right now, Paul? I see it as the, the number one question. Knowing Aaron, uh, just I mean, from being around him all these years, the way you do, as whether you want to say it's stubborn or, or different or principled, I can very well see a scenario where he doesn't budge, where he says he's not interested in playing in Green Bay and he's not coming back. So then you think about leverage for the team in these situations. What leverage do they have to bring him back? At this point of Aaron's career, what, what leverage might Green Bay have to make him come back or make him feel like he should come back? All it is to me is financial. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to write about this in my column next week. But a couple of years ago, I did a story connecting Aaron Rodgers and Bart Starr. It was the last interview that Bart Starr ever did, and it wasn't really much of an interview. Bart was not in really good shape at that time. Um, but the, the reason why I think of it now is that Aaron Rodgers has a reverence for this franchise has a reverence for the history, has a reverence for the people in it, loves Lambeau Field, um, quite honestly feels a certain privilege to have had the chance to be in this lineage of, you know, Bart Starr, Brett Favre, and now Aaron Rodgers. So I think it probably does hurt him some that he uh, is basically, he knows that this ugliness is going to play itself out in front of America over the next few weeks and quite honestly over the next few months probably. But as far as leverage for the team goes, I think it's simply, and I don't know that it would come to this, but they will have the right if he doesn't show up to get some of the money back that they've paid him, you know, in – in bonuses uh, and in, you know, in some contractual sort of, you might see them as sort of, you know, salary advances, some would say. They're not really, it's not really salary because when you basically get a large signing bonus from the team, it's paid uh, at, at one time, but for salary cap purposes, it is, you know, constructed over a period of years. And, you know, we'll see whether the Packers would ask for some of that back. We'll see if they would ask for his roster bonus back, um, you know, from this year, uh, which I think was paid in March, uh, $6.8 million. So will that have much to do with what Aaron Rodgers thinks? I kind of doubt it. But, uh, Paul, I just don't see this. I don't see this having either an amicable or uh, a quick conclusion. And the, the other word that comes to mind, uh, aside from leverage, Peter, that I'd like to hear your thoughts on when I think about where this might be going, and that's fixed. 
I mean, it, anytime there's a relationship, whether it's with a spouse, a sibling, and maybe a work relationship that's very important, but that's in trouble, you think about, okay, how can this be fixed? How can we make it better so the two sides can come back? What is it that could be mended here, if anything? You know, I believe possibly, and you know, and who knows if if it's too late for this or or whatever. But I think possibly, uh, what could happen is that Mark Murphy, you know, the team president and and the de facto owner. There is no owner; it's owned by the public. Uh, but basically, the owner's representative could step in and tell Brian Gutekunst, the general manager, uh, and Matt Lafleur, the coach to come up with a plan that would basically show Rogers that uh, his thoughts, suggestions, input uh, would be valued now. Um, and, and in that way, almost, Paul, it reminds me a little bit of, of the Russell Wilson situation in Seattle, because that's what Russell Wilson so badly wants. Um, you know, he wants to be heard he wants to have input, and he doesn't currently in personnel or coaching. Um, and a lot of people listening to this might say, you know, that's really presumptuous that you think it's a good idea for a player to have input in personnel decisions or, or whatever. Look, this is as easy as, for instance, you know, if there's an injury during the season. You know, it's as easy as saying to Aaron Rodgers, which receiver should we bring up? Who, who do you think we should bring up from the practice squad? Or is there somebody on the street who you know or have a good feeling about that you'd like to see us consider? Now, in Green Bay, um, you know, as I wrote this week, Paul, Ron Wolf basically set the personnel and and management structure of this team when he got hired for the job 30 years ago as general manager. And that structure basically is the general manager picks the players, the coach coaches the players and players play and kind of never the twain shall meet. So it's a classic old football structure. I'm sure that the Packers think it's working fine because they won a lot of games and it does work well. But it works well when Aaron Rodgers is your quarterback and when Brett Favre was the quarterback before that. So in my opinion, the structure is not as important as the structurees, shall we say. You know, the people, the people who are being structured. <laughs> so anyway, Paul, I think this is going to last right. a while. I don't think that Rodgers is the kind of guy – who is going to set, wake up one day and say, you know, I want to build a bridge, so never mind. We'll, we'll figure this out. I, I, I think we're at this point because they haven't been able to figure it out. So we'll see what happens. Right. Well, let's move from whatever feeling uh, fits in Green Bay inside of Lambeau Field right now uh, to the opposite feeling, and that's the hope that's felt right now in Jacksonville. It, it, Peter, I, I'm in Connecticut. I can feel the optimism and excitement of Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence all the way up here. You were there right. on Friday. You stood next to it. You saw it. You felt it. What can you report? You know, it was funny. When I got into Jacksonville on Friday morning, I went to see Shaq Khan, the owner of Jaguars. Um, we sat in his office. He's wearing Jaguars sweatpants. <laughs> and uh we sat in his office and he's uh he's just so excited he, he said to me uh, i said what, what are you feeling right now on the day that you know the first day that trevor lawrence is a jaguar he says oh my god it's it's almost too good to believe and so he's been a fan who's been disappointed before often over and over again and so i think there is this hope and look Trevor Lawrence, I think um, what's good about the NFL is that, say, once every generation, almost every team comes into uh, connection or comes to basically acquire somehow a great, great player. 
you you can look back over almost uh, oh you know in this century the 21 years of this century and you can see okay um you know the patriots tom brady 2000 you know so you can you can find one great player and now if you look at the jaguars i would argue that you know they've been alive now for what 26 years i think and they've never had a transformative quarterback like this ever and I think this is the moment they look at Paul as finally we're going to be good for a while. When I left there, that was the feeling I had. You had to leave Atlanta to get to Jacksonville. You were there the night before. And with their fourth pick, Peter, I looked at it as the Falcons basically doing two things. Number one, they made Cal Pitts the highest drafted tight end ever but also i think equally important or maybe just as important they basically recommitted to matt ryan and said okay yeah. you're our guy for the next couple of years that's exactly what happened i mean um what was interesting is that i met with uh you know the uh, the new coach arthur uh, arthur smith and the new general manager terry fontenot about 45 minutes or so after the draft, after round one. So it was, I don't know, maybe 1245, something like that, Friday morning. And in the time we spent together, two things really were impressed on me. One is that they never really thought seriously of jettisoning Matt Ryan and adding one of these young quarterbacks because I just don't think that they loved any of the quarterbacks with the exception, um, you know, with the exception of first pick in the draft of Trevor Lawrence, as much as they love this tight end. They didn't want to force a quarterback, especially at a time when they believe Matt Ryan's three to five very, you know, good years left. And so I think that, was really sitting in their brain as they began the process of trying to rebuild this franchise. The one other thing I left there with Paul is that uh, I don't think because Julio Jones wasn't traded um, on draft weekend, I don't think that means he, that he won't be traded. And in fact, I'd say I'd say it's better than 50-50 that he will be traded before training camp begins. The reason is obviously the, the Falcons are basically in cap jail right now, and they could clear an awful lot of space by trading Julio Jones June 2 or after, meaning they could separate his cap hit uh, into uh, into two years instead of taking it all now. So that's why I still think there's a good chance he's going to get traded. Um, and look, we can discuss the teams, pick the teams. I mean, you know, Baltimore, Miami, uh, uh, you know, Las Vegas, New England, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of teams you can look at, but I really think it's going to take one of those teams to step up and offer a second round pick. And we'll see if one of them does. I was going to ask what you think it would take with his age and the, and the knowledge that Atlanta probably needs to do this for cap reasons, but second round seems seems pretty high. It is high, um, but if you consider if he's traded to a good team, you know, and you get two to three years out of Julio Jones, who when he has played, and look, he only played half the season last year, but when he played, he was still an absolutely dominant receiver. And I think, you know, Arthur Blank told me we do not have to trade him. Um, and he said, I hope we don't. But I think that's the owner being nice. I, I think that this franchise would would view it as a positive if they could get cap relief and also get something significant for, for Julio Jones. Bringing it back to the yeah, draft specifically here, Peter, when Atlanta took Kyle Pitts at four, it wasn't a real big surprise. I think the defining moment of the top 10 came at three when the 49ers went with Trey Lance 
instead of Mac Jones. It was one of the biggest questions coming in all the way up. And I was like millions of people watching, Peter, and I wondered, I mean, what made the difference for John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan? Why Lance over Jones? You had a 34-minute conversation with Kyle. In At the end of the day, I think it is – the po- it, it, it's really the possibilities that a long-term uh, partnership with Trey Lance presented, um, and you know, in part, his athleticism, uh, which he's significantly more athletic than Mac Jones. I think one of the reasons why this was a really hard choice for Kyle Shanahan is because he grew to love Matt. Uh, Mac Jones. Uh, And he's not just saying that he thinks that Mac Jones is going to be a great, great player. Um, But I do think there is some part of all of the stuff that Trey Lance does well, making off schedule plays, being able to throw on the run, doing things outside the pocket that probably Mac Jones would be more of certainly be more of an inside the pocket guy. But as I as I keep thinking, who won the Super Bowl last year? Tom Brady. Who won the Super Bowl six years ago? Peyton Manning. Who you know, it is not like the game has changed so dramatically that you can't have a total pocket quarterback and win. You can, but I just think they saw more possibilities long term uh, with Trey Lance. When I was thinking about it, Peter, and I thought about it quite a bit leading up and in the uh, in the days since, when a GM and a head coach like a quarterback that much, when they love him that much, they think he's worth a third pick, you're really looking at across the board a number of things that we're really enamored with. So then you're looking for tiebreakers. And what tiebreaker, what extra do we prioritize? And clearly, Kyle Shanahan, after reading about your conversation with him, his extra was, okay, if nobody's open, Trey Lance gives us a chance to get a first down. He thought that was more important than Mac Jones, who he didn't say this, but I mean, just in evaluating the two, there's a higher level of consistency with ball goes to the right place, balls on time, balls accurate against really, really good teams against NFL kind of players. And either one was right. I'm glad you brought up that point. At the end of the day, I think you're absolutely spot on, but at the end of the day, Kyle Shanahan just got really more excited watching Trey Lance and breaking down tape of Trey Lance. He just was so excited about what he can do in the San Francisco offense. So, I mean, I think what I, one of the things I really took out of this conversation with Kyle Shanahan is that some days he would really love Trey Lance when he was analyzing him. And then he'd, turn on the tape the next day and he goes, man, this is lacking or that's lacking or something. And he'd do the same thing with all the quarterbacks. And and as he said to me, he goes, sometimes I watch tape and I think back to two days ago when I loved this guy and said, what, what was I thinking? So he's, he can be emotional and, uh, and he can think different thoughts about quarterbacks uh, the more he looks at them. But I just think, this all comes down to him getting so excited watching the tape of Trey Lance and him being a malleable sort of, um, you, you know, a malleable piece of clay uh, in in Shanahan's hands. And I think he's excited about that. And Peter, I really appreciated uh, reading that, the human part of it that you just mentioned. I mean, the football explanation was great. It answered a lot of questions, but in that exclamation, or in that explanation, Kyle also got into this. Hey, I'd spend a couple of days where I wasn't sure. I'd, I'd watch him for a day. And I thought, no, I don't think so. And that indecision, and then ultimately falling for the person as well. He talked about how much he enjoyed him as a person. So, yeah, I thought he did a great job of weaving in the. Hey, at the end of the day, I'm a dude who can fall for somebody who, because of the personality and because of the excitements about one characteristic, and. He included that really well, and that was uh, it was nice to read. Yeah. Uh, you know, the last thing I would say is that I think Kyle Shanahan realizes the importance of this pick. He really does. You know, he said, look, uh, it's different 
if you pick a guy at 12 than if you pick a guy at three. You pick a guy at three. I mean, this is, this is, there's no, uh, this has to be right. And he knows that and the pressure is on. And uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see how Shanahan, how long Shanahan sticks with Jimmy Garoppolo if Garoppolo is a game or two not playing well, let's say in early October. He might, he might, he might make the change then. But my gut feeling is this is Garoppolo's job as long as he plays well. The 49ers put themselves in a pretty good position there, trading up to number three. But you look at all the teams in the town theater outside of Jacksonville who they really could have had anybody they wanted to. I thought the team most in position A, when you line up what was available with their needs, the Bengals at five, they could have had the receiver they liked the most. They could have had the best offensive tackle in the draft. What do you think about their call to go with Jamar Chase instead of Panay Sewell? You know, before the draft, when the Bengals, uh, when their personnel people were, were they talked at one point to, to Joe Burrow. Burrow did not express, I really want Jamar Chase or I really want Panay Sewell. I think he would have been happy with either one of them. Um, and I think there are, there are many, many people who believe both inside the team and outside the team that a tackle was a more important pick for them right now. But I think the Bengals just thought that the talent in Jamar Chase and the fact that he had had a record-breaking season two years ago with Joe Burrow at LSU just really pushed this over the top and was the tiebreaker. I think what's going to be really interesting is that so the Bengals took Clemson's best offensive lineman in the second round, Jackson Carmen, and they're probably going to play him at guard this year. But long term, most likely, I think Riley Reef gives them one year at right tackle, and then probably they move Carmen out there. But they <clears throat> they figured what I had heard going into the draft, Paul, is that they thought the separation between one of those three receivers and let's say Jamar Chase um, at number five, the separation between them, those receivers, and then the next group, that the separation was a lot larger than the separation between Panay Sewell and then say the, the fourth or fifth offensive tackle. And that's a big reason, I think, why they made that decision. And I think one other reason that they made that call to go with Jamar Chase is because it gives them something in their top three receivers that makes them a little bit of a different preparation. When you have Chase yeah. and Higgins either side, out wide, and Tyler Boyd inside, let's not forget he's inside as a slot guy instead of outside. That threesome right there gives them something that a defense has to worry about. So not just his individual talent, but what it can make that little group of receivers. Do. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So you also mentioned that they went offensive line, Jackson Carmen at 46 in round two. Let's get into the team that picked next, Miami at six. They were busy, Peter. They had four picks in the top 42, and they also went receiver first. You know, I think one of the things that they really love about Jalen Waddell is, first of all, it's his playmaking, playmaking ability and and look, they love Devontae Smith, too. Everybody loves Devontae Smith. Right. So, uh, but I think I think the other factor with Jalen Waddell is the fact that he's clearly and far, far and away the best returner in this draft. And uh, as another general manager told me, he said, with Jalen Waddell, you're getting a very good receiver and you're getting, you might be getting Devin Hester. So, you know, I mean, that's that's the imagery there is weird that you're basically drafting two players. But I think there are some in the league who really feel like uh, Jalen Waddell is that good. The other Jalen they picked with the 18th pick um, is obviously uh, a very, very deep study of a story in Jalen Phillips um, because he quit football at one point 
when he played at UCLA, hated playing for Chip Kelly, um, ended up going to community college or junior college out in LA and was not going to play football, but then missed it a lot, put himself in the transfer portal, ended up at Miami and really was just a great, great pass rusher uh, at Miami last year. And so uh, I think the Dolphins investigated him thoroughly, ended up really liking him and two different uh, one GM and one personnel guy, two different people told me that they thought that Jalen Phillips was the best defensive player in this draft. So obviously uh, they're, they're really hoping for a home run with that 18th pick. And they also got something they needed badly in that second round, Liam Eikenberg, who can play a couple of different spots on that offensive line. So we get out of the top 10, and one of the subplots post top 10 picks, okay, where's Mac Jones going to go? He ends up with the Patriots. Where's Justin Fields going to go? So let's back up to that moment when the Bears traded up eight spots to 12 to get Justin Fields. What was your thought at that point? And what do you think of the fit now that he joins? Andy Dalton there in Chicago. You know, I think the biggest issue there was, you know, Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace had to feel like not only was this guy uh, a good prospect as a quarterback, but it's is he worth uh, really pillaging next year's draft in order to do so? Because to move up those nine spots from 20 to 11, it costs them a one and a four in next year's draft when they traded with the Giants. thought it was a great trade for the Giants. And I thought it was an important trade for the Chicago Bears. Um, Nobody has any faith that Andy Dalton is going to be anything but a placeholder, which probably he would be. And now you don't, we don't know how long Andy Dalton's going to play. If he doesn't play well, if they're on a two game, three game losing streak, Uh, You could see Justin Fields in there, but this becomes sort of in some ways the makeup call for what happened, um, you know, in 2017 when they passed on Patrick Mahomes. And, you know, you asked about you asked about the Patriots. then, And I I think this was, you know, as I wrote my column this week, Paul, what what New England's pick at 15 really reminded me of is the end of the Seattle-New England Super Bowl six years ago. And remember in the last minute when we're all either yelling at the TV or the person next to us in the press box, in my case, I I kept saying, why is he not calling a timeout? Why is Belichick just letting the clock run down? He's going to have no time if if Seattle puts it in. And, you know, turns out Belichick was righter than rain on this one. You know, the Seahawks obviously didn't didn't stop the clock before they went to the line. They kind of hurried the play in and they get the Malcolm Butler interception and win the game. No one could believe it. But that's what this reminded me of. Belichick understood that he had a very good chance once it got to about 10 or 11. He had a very good chance to stay right where he was and get Mac Jones, who's the quarterback they really wanted. So. I think I think both of those moves are really positive moves for franchises that needed long-term passers. I also think about with New England and that pick, and I'm not comparing Mac Jones to Tom Brady because that would be ridiculous, but you think about his qualities. Uh, ball goes to the right place, throws it accurately, smart and right. tough, but doesn't move very well. That, that kind of sums up Tom Brady as well. So I, I think Belichick also going back to hoping he had some of the same things that he found. Yeah in Tom Brady. Let's get back to the Bears, Peter. And the other part, kind of a story below the fold with that trade with the Giants, Dave Gettleman starts out his draft by trading back in the first round for the first time in his career. I think Gettleman had felt sort of beaten up over the last few weeks because, you know, he really seemed prehistoric to never have traded back, you know, from the first round. But this was, he had two excellent opportunities to trade back in this draft and he used them. And, and look, I don't know if Gettleman um, is going to be the, the long-term boss of this team. Nobody knows, but he did the right thing for the future of the franchise. And in my opinion, I think 
what I find really interesting about the Giants, you know, Kadarius Tony, so many people wanted him. Urban Meyer admitted that it sort of broke his heart when Tony was taken at 20, where the Giants traded with Chicago. But I think the other interesting guy, you know, who the Giants got, um, you know, after trading down in the second round was Aziz Ojolari, um, the defensive end from Georgia, edge rusher from Georgia. So a lot of teams seem to have questions about Aziz Ojolari after a, uh, a knee injury, a past knee injury surfaced late in the process. I think that was a big reason uh, why the Giants were able to get him at 50. Um, but everything I've heard and read is that Aziz Ojolari should be fine. And I think after you get Kadarius Toney at, with pick number 20, uh, you've helped Daniel Jones with the offense. And then you're deep in the second round and you get a guy at your biggest need area on this team. And that is a pass rusher. So if Aziz Ojolari is healthy, that is a great pick. The Cleveland Browns on the field last year, Peter. Nice story. How they kept pushing it forward. Uh, how they were winning more than they're losing in, the, in that city. That's a real story for everyone right now. They go in the first round, Greg Newsom, cornerback, Northwestern. Round two, Jeremiah Wusukormo, outside linebacker, Notre Dame. It's a small sample size, but what's your read on what Andrew Barry, GM, Kevin Stefanski are doing there, personnel in Cleveland? You know, I think because Owusu-Koromoa, uh, uh, you know, slipped in this draft, I think this is where the Browns really pounced on a guy um, who, you know, really was a great opportunity pick for them. And I think the reason that the Browns feel comfortable, uh, you know, trading up and getting them at 52 was funny. I had had the Browns trading up to get him in the first round. And now the Browns in my mock draft and, and the Browns instead got him in the second round. You know, and I think one of the things that interests me just about this pick is that he is a guy who I think is going to step in right away. He is so pro ready. And Paul, your exposure to the Notre Dame program, you know what a great player and a great leader he was. I think that's a great acquisition for, for Cleveland. I really like what they did in this draft. Peter, I got to watch him. I saw every game he played in uh, the last couple of seasons when he started to become a star. And what, what matters to me is I noticed him the most in the really big games. Notre Dame played at Georgia a couple of years ago and sideline to sideline against DeAndre Swift. He, he showed up. He showed up behind the line of scrimmage and in front of it. He was, to me, the main reason they beat Clemson this year, scored a touchdown, mm -hmm. caused a fumble. And against North Carolina this year, it's a game that didn't get as much hype, but those two running backs were drafted into the NFL, and he led the team pretty easily in tackles that day. So his talent didn't just show up in the offseason. It showed up in big games. And like you, I was surprised he didn't go in the first round. Yeah. I, you know, that, that happens, though, Paul. You know, um, you're always surprised by some things in this draft, but I think the Browns were the beneficiary of him being able to get him at 52. Absolutely. Let's bring this full, uh, full circle now with our last topic. We come back to Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. There's a lot of ripple effects to think about if he does follow through and uh, if he's not there, if he chooses not to play for the Packers this year. Think about the networks who for 30 years now have known they get either Brett Favre or Aaron yep. Rodgers at historic Lambeau Field. Maybe they don't get that this year. The weird thing about this story is the NFL will release its schedule next week. And when they release the schedule, what's going to be very interesting is what the, what the NFL is going to do with the Packers in prime time. Just, this is just my guess, but I, I think they must be scrambling now because the Packers clearly were going to have probably four doubleheader games you know, on Fox and CBS uh, late Sunday afternoon window, and they'd probably have five, um, you know, games in prime time. Couple on NBC, uh, maybe one on ESPN. 
uh, one on Thursday night. So, I mean, that's that all of that. Now I would bet that all of the networks are saying to Howard Katz at the NFL, Hey, uh, let's just, let's limit our exposure on the Packers now. So I will, I would bet that, you know, right now, as we record this on Tuesday afternoon, they're really scrambling inside the NFL office to try to figure out what to do with the Green Bay Packers. And if they're looking for NFC replacements with the Niners taking Trey Lance and the Bears, big market, a lot of interest going with Justin Fields, maybe Howard and his team can can do some shuffling around there in the NFC. I think you're right. Well, Paul, listen, thanks for breaking down the draft with me. Much, much appreciated. And um, we will talk again next week. You know, we always seem to have something happening. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but I'm sure it'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks so much. And now my conversation with Trevor Lawrence, first pick in the draft with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Peter King with NBC Sports here in Jacksonville with the number one pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, Trevor Lawrence, the Clemson quarterback. Well, Trevor, now that you're here, how does it feel to be not only the number one pick in the draft, but a Jacksonville Jaguar. Feels great. Uh, I mean, first thing when we got here, there was like third graders outside the stadium uh, welcoming us. So just seeing that from the community was super cool. And then just being here and meeting everyone. Everyone's so nice and, and welcoming. And we're really excited to make this place home and couldn't be more proud to be a Jag. One of those kids said to you, I believe, Mr. Lawrence, is your hair real? <laughs> Yeah, they were saying a lot. They, they, they were asking if I was paying for their food. They were asking everything. So yeah. they were they were awesome. Um, so I wonder how long has it been since you said to yourself, "I want to be a quarterback in the NFL one day." I mean, I've I've wanted to be a quarterback ever since I was like five years old. So that's been a long time. Honestly, NFL. I think probably in high school I started having that dream of like you know. I, I can, I can, I think I can do this. Um, but before then, it was like I just want to be a college quarterback. And then, that's so surreal now. Last night, especially with my family, being a number one pick, and then now coming here and making a new place home—it's just so much fun. So we're really excited, but the work is just getting started. You know, so we're ready to do it. I've always wondered when someone like you, since you were 13 or 14 years old, you have been kind of catered to and everybody telling you how wonderful you are and how great you are and getting into high school with the same thing. What is it like now coming to this level with the level of expectations you had? It's probably even higher than it was at Clemson. Yeah, for me, I've kind of dealt with that for a few years, so it's not just not changing anything, just continuing to be who I am um, and bringing that into a new place. Uh, I've learned so many great things at Clemson, been surrounded by great people like Coach Sweeney and the whole staff and my teammates and actually going to bring a teammate with me, Travis. So yeah. um, just being the same person I've, I've been through the years and not changing just because, you know, now I'm in the NFL or whatever at a new place. And I think just continuing to be me is the main thing. Does pressure bother you? No, I'm used to it. Um, you know, that's that's really what I'm accustomed to now. and. Um, I think that's what I operate the best is under pressure. One of the interesting things in the story that Michael Bamber, Sports Illustrated, wrote about you that sort of got lost in the hurricane of all the stuff about how you just kind of want to be a normal guy. But one of the things that got lost is that when you were in high school, your coach stressed with you that you always should have goals. Mm -hmm. and. Trevor, what's your goal? And I think when you were a senior, you said, Coach, I just want to be the best who's ever done it. Mm. Do you remember saying that to him? And describe whether that kind of lives in you now. Yeah, I remember that conversation we had, and Coach King, we've been super close for a long time. Joey King at your yeah, high Joey school, King, right? Yes, now. sir, yeah. So he was there last night, actually. But had that conversation, and really it's just, for me, maximizing who I am and my potential. And that's all I'm trying to do. And hopefully that's that's good enough to be the best to ever do it. So that's the, the one thing I'm focused on is just being the best I can be. And hopefully that's better than anyone else that's done it. So, um, but for me, that's my focus is internal. And that's, that's what I want to do is just be my best. You wore 16 because of Peyton Manning, right? Yeah. So, yep. so have you 
had much conversation with him because it seems like almost every day of his adult life was spent trying to be the best there ever was. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've talked a lot. Um, our paths have crossed the past few months uh, a few times, so it's always great to bounce things off him. That was someone I looked up to as a kid and it's kind of why I wear number 16. So just hearing from him and kind of going through a similar situation that he went through a number of years ago and just some of his advice on how to do things the right way and the biggest thing I think is just coming in and, and going to work and really earning the trust and respect of your teammates. I think that's the most important thing. Um, not coming in with any expectations, but just coming in here to put the work in and really to get to know all the guys and become part of the team. Did you pay much attention to the sort of insane pre-draft buildup for this draft with all the quarterbacks in it? Not really, honestly. I was kind of in my own lane and just like I had surgery, so I've just been trying to rehab and get healthy and feeling really good. So I spent a lot of time getting my body right and healthy for this season. So honestly, no, I was obviously hoping I ended up That's in Jacksonville. That's good for you, by the way. That's yeah. good for you, by the way, that you didn't get yeah. involved in the insanity. No, and I, obviously the whole time I was hoping I was going to be in Jacksonville and it worked out and it's been, it's been awesome and just excited to go to work. Do you think Jacksonville also fits you because you went to school in not a major city yeah. And obviously Jacksonville's one of the smallest markets in the NFL. For sure. I mean, I'm not necessarily accustomed to a big city. I'm from a smaller town in Georgia. Went to school in Clemson, which is a small town. If anyone's been there, they, they know it's, it's, there's not much there. Um, so that wasn't a concern for me. I'm perfectly fine with it. And I think the biggest thing is like the community's been so awesome and the fan support. And you can tell this is a place where the best days are definitely ahead. And I'm excited to get to be a part of that. When you got to know Urban Meyer a little bit when he was working mm -hmm. for Fox and doing some college football stuff for their pregame show, anything stick out with you talking to him, wondering, man, I wonder if this guy's ever going to coach in the NFL <laughs> or anything like that? I mean, yeah. when did you first feel what you might think of was maybe a little bit of a connection with him? You know, I didn't talk to him much when he was with Fox. I did. Uh, I saw him on TV doing some of the shows and all that. Um, but something I've just seen through his whole career is he's a winner. Um, and then now talking to him and seeing just his thought process and how he builds things and how he's already, you know, kind of done such a good job with this organization and built the team and all those things. I think it's special, and you can just know it when you see it. Someone that's a winner, and Coach Sweeney was that way. And you see the success he had, and Coach, you know, Coach Meyer had the same success in college. So, being a part of that, I mean, you don't find guys like that often that really just are like the innate in, inside of them is just to win. So, um, it's special. It's going to be kind of weird, I would think, that both you and he never lost <laughs> or never lost very much, yeah. and he might have to get used to a, a ten-loss season, as might you. You never know. But I wonder, you lost two games in college, you might lose two games in a month. You might lose two games in eight days. And I wonder, how have you thought about that and how it would affect you? Yeah, obviously I hate to lose. Um, I'm used to winning. And that's just the same mindset I want to bring in here, though, too, is I don't want to you know, really adjust. I want to bring that same mindset here and um, just try to make everyone around me better. And obviously we have some some great players already here. Um, so I'm just excited to be a part of that locker room and get to know everyone. And that's like talking to Coach Meyer. I don't want to adjust anything. I don't want to expect to lose. I want to still expect to win. So that's the plan. And we're going to do everything in our power to get ready and, and to be the best we can be. You might know that Jacksonville every year plays a game in London. Mm. Um, and Shad Khan, the owner of the team, kind of wants to make this, you know, England's team. and. He told me that he felt that you might be able to be, with sort of your charisma, your look, the first American superstar over in England. And I wonder, do, have you thought about the fact that you're going to now be big in Europe? Not really, honestly. I, I've thought about how cool it'll be to, to play in London, but I don't really, I try not to think about that too much and just my job. Now, especially, is to come in and, and to, to win games and to get ready to be the best I can be and to make the team as good as we can be. So I try not to think about all the other byproducts of it. That's Obviously, wise, that'll by be the way. Cool. Yeah. Wise. That's my, you know, 
it's, it's my job now, so I figure I need to focus on trying to win games. But um, it's going to be cool. Obviously, that just makes this even more special, this whole situation in this whole city. Last thing I would ask you is basically, do you think your game basically transfers well to the NFL in the way the game is being played in the NFL? It's changing a lot, and it seems to me, I've covered the league for 37 years, and it seems to me there's never been a time more than now that quarterback play in college kind of simulates quarterback play in the NFL. As you look at it, does your game have to change much right now? I mean, there's obviously so many things that I, I want to improve on and get better at, but really I think there's not one specific way you need to play quarterback to be successful. I think there's a lot of different ways you can do it. You see guys like Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson that all play differently. So it's just doing what I know that I'm good at and bringing that here and improving on all the things I need to improve on. But no, I, and to answer your question, I don't think I need to change. Um, obviously you have to adapt and it's learning a new offense and all those things. But as far as my style of play, um, I'm just gonna be me and play the way I've always played. Trevor Lawrence, good luck in the NFL. Thank you, sir. And now a couple of things with Kyle Shanahan. Uh, I, I want to play you a couple of bits from the interview I did with him over the weekend. And I'm going to start uh, with a, uh, in my opinion, a very re revealing two minutes and 37 seconds. You know, when I basically asked Kyle Shanahan, how did you know that it should be Trey Lance? It's so hard for me to give a quick answer, but his natural ability to play the quarterback position, um, just in terms of, how he plays in the pocket, how he can go through a progression, how when no one's open, how that he gives it a chance, that he recognizes it, and how quick he reacts is to turn it into an off-schedule play. That he he plays on tape like he's a very poised, smart person who's been playing the position for a while. And then, then you look into the other attributes, and you're like, oh, I haven't got into the running skill set. I haven't got to the upside of how much better he can get the more he plays. And that's what makes you... That's why I mean, he liked him so much right away. Mm -hmm. But it's also, once you do that, you see all this. Now, all right, now let's talk about what's wrong. Why isn't this a slam dunk and stuff like that? And then right. you hear his school, the lack of throws, um, not playing the 2020 season. Um, that's Those are real things. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm glad that we had a long time to go through it because you love the tape. But just like everyone in the league, there are some stuff you can't just – um, stamp it and say it's a slam dunk which you can't really with anybody um, but that's the stuff that worries you about it but that's what was so cool about the kit that going through this process after we moved up to where I've met with him so many times I've talked to him so many times um, to have him go through the number of tests and stuff that we have them all go through I, I can't tell you how special of a person he is it has nothing to do with football He's extremely intelligent. He's knows how to handle situations. He knows how to carry himself. Um, the guy that I see on tape that I tried to describe, that I see such a, a natural quarterback, such a smart player, well, if I never saw the tape, and then I, I got to hang out with him first, I would have felt that same way with him as a person and been like, man, I hope the tape matches this person. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, that's kind of what was cool about it. Like, the first time you watch the tape, Man, hell yeah. But no, no decisions set in stone in January. But that's how I felt in January when I saw him. But I was going to do the process right, watch everybody. Any, any, every guy, I, could, I can always spend two hours to get myself to like anyone. And then I go to the time getting myself to not like him. And I see what ends up sticking. And that's what was cool about him through the process at the end. Like, no matter what I tried to do to... Yeah, it's too risky, it's too this. All that stuff kind of went away the more I got to know the person. And it went back to how I originally felt about the tape. I also asked Shanahan, what made you intrigued by uh, this player? Specifically, what did Trey Lance do um, that maybe the other quarterbacks available couldn't do? I really thought his answer was thoughtful in a football sense it was very intriguing and, and yeah. i'm always intrigued with that that type of stuff it's it's i 
I mean, there's not many quarterbacks in this league. Um, I mean, there's not there's not 32 who can play this position. It's so tough. Yeah. And then when you can, and especially how hard it is to just go against these defenses in these fronts. And I've always been intrigued when you can have a guy uh, make the defense play 11 on 11. It just slows down the game a little bit. I yeah. also know you cannot have a guy that only makes them worry about the run because it's just a matter of time before that becomes pretty easy to contain and that's not built to last so you got to have a guy that can do both and just the more you watched them the more you would believe now there was so that was this was just at the beginning but you could see right then man there's i already thought there's a guy at 12 this guy that we just watched you can see so much more stuff that intrigues you and that's why where can we get these guys and the goal is to get up higher and it wasn't to go to three right away. I mean, that's why we looked into five. We looked into four. Yeah. Um, and But we knew we had to get up there so we could get more information so we could really do this. But we saw enough on tape that we knew we really wanted to do it and we wanted to confirm this. So then when we get up there and we go into it and have more time to look at everything, I'll tell you one of the things that was tough. The way you feel at 12, when you get to three and, and you start to see um, and you're there, it, be, it does become a bigger deal because you realize, all right, I like a lot of people at 12 because these guys are talented and you see the upside and everything. But now you get to three and you're like, it's not about upside. This is about, <laughs> I don't you can't miss. This has got to be right. Yeah. Or at 12, that's, it's more about everything. It's more about upside and stuff. So you take that all into account and then we have three months to do it. My thanks to... Kyle Shanahan, the head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, and Trevor Lawrence, the new quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars. It was a heck of a weekend, and we'll be back again next week with another edition of the Peter King Podcast.